What's up, what's up, YouTube? This is Shakamara doing a late night reading before I go to bed tonight. Um, so on page seven, it says, in the beginning was the word. Already I'm stopped, it seems absurd. I must translate it otherwise. If I am well inspired and not blind, it says in the beginning was the mind. Ponder that first line, wait and see, lest you should write too hastily. Is mind all creating source? It ought to say in the beginning there was force. Yet something warns me as I grasp the pen that my translation must be changed again. The spirit helps me. Now it is exact. I write in the beginning was the act. Goths Faust. Let me show you something real quick. Pretty cool. Okay. So, preface. The corpus of Egyptian funerary texts demonstrate an advanced 21st century knowledge of space physics, quantum physics, molecular biology, supramolecular chemistry, and bacterial genetics. Using this expansive knowledge base, the ancient Egyptians carved a sophisticated symbolic system of art and hieroglyphs into the tombs of the pharaohs and nobility to disguise their science. The Isis Thesis, Volume 1, posits that the primary objective of the heritage, the primary objective of their hidden scientific knowledge was to map the chemical path by which the genetic heritage of the deceased was preserved and vectored into a bioluminescent species that was not recycled back to Earth in the world of photosynthesis. Decoding an elaborate network of over 870 signs in eight different texts spanning 2,000 years the thesis explains how the pharaoh's science of death made humans into gods by cloning a new species. With this knowledge, the pharaohs insist humanity can reinvent itself at death. For humans today, this knowledge may be an alternative to species suicide due to overpopulation, nuclear war, global warming, and mass extinction. The story, a surreal plot of works of art, facts, and fiction. To convey this scientific knowledge to readers and students that are not scientists or Egyptology scholars, 
The Road from Orion, Volume 2, is a story supporting and relating to the study based on a surreal plot of fictional characters, historical facts, and great works of art. Using the Egyptian method of providing drawings to aid understanding, the table of contents for the story is modeled on the Egyptian Senet game and depicts 30 chapter drawings related to events in the story. Within the text of the story, direct quotations of creative artists from renowned works of literature, art, music, and philosophy are designated by italics with the work itself referenced in a short bibliography at the conclusion. These great works of art point to scientific concepts referenced in the thesis and add support to the interpretation, but not valid scientific evidence. Other themes woven within the story's plot address several controversial questions. Is schizophrenia a direct experience of the quantum world of atoms? Do hallucinogens allow humans access to the quantum world? Do each of us have an invisible double? Did royal incest enhance the Pharaoh's spiritual consciousness? Has our idea of God prevented us from accessing comprehensive wisdom? The Thesis A Study of Egyptian Ideas and Signs The Isis Thesis begins with an abstract of the study as an advanced organizer. <clears throat> After this, we begin our quest to restore the effaced Egyptian sign so that the Pharaoh's lost knowledge is restored to history. Part one of the thesis reviews methods, sources, and the major ideas in the pyramid text and the coffin text, analyzing textual evidence. We map the Pharaoh's path to eternity discovering space physics evidence for actual energy landscapes that match Egyptian descriptions. Part two examines the quantum world of the cell for the Egyptian signs are dual signified. We discover that the macroscopic earth system operates like a tiny bacterium. As the legendary alchemist Hermes Trismegistus said, what is below is like that which is above. Part 3 deconstructs the Amduat, a book often called the Egyptian Heaven and Hell, describing a journey through a black hole protein funnel. Next, we analyze the Book of Gates, another Middle Kingdom text found in the great tombs of the pharaohs. Briefly, we peer into the Book of Caverns. In part four, we explore the mystifying book of two ways that still intrigues religious scholars. The New Kingdom, Edifice of Taharqa, and the popular New Kingdom Book of the Dead, including the Theban Recension. 
As a corpus, these texts are unified in their presentation of Egyptian science that centers around predicted chemical events in the afterlife of the deceased. We close our investigation in part five with an evaluation of the Egyptian legacy and its links to string theory, black hole theory, inflationary cosmology, and world religious perspectives. Covering eight funerary texts within one book was a massive task that presented several difficulties. The first problem was how to address the large range of interconnected and dual signified signs that have confused scholars for centuries. In an attempt to understand these signs with no intrusions, I became a full-time independent researcher for three years, <clears throat> leaving my college teaching and grant writing career in 2001. This allowed me the opportunity to carefully decode the meaning of the signs and catalog them in matrices with modern science parallels. The second problem was the depth of cutting-edge scientific knowledge embedded in the Egyptian texts. Fortunately, non-stop satellite internet access allowed research opportunities any time of the day or night. Also, excellent online university tutorials and courses in biology, chemistry, physics, and genetics deepened my knowledge. Thanks to the efforts of the Otsego County Library and their interlibrary loans, I was able to obtain unusual texts such as the edifice of Taharka by Richard A. Parker, Jean LeClant, and Jean-Claude Goyan. Other texts such as Alexandre Pionko's impressive portfolio of plates photographed from the tomb of Ramesses VI were invaluable. The third problem centered on the complexity of the funerary text, which required numerous reviews of each text. To resolve the complexity issue and aid research and understanding, I compared the Old Kingdom Pyramid text and Middle Kingdom Coffin text, listing the major Egyptian themes or idea strands as an appendix for the reader. This should also be helpful to critics who have not read the funerary text. However, an ideal critique of the ISIS thesis rests on the critic having read all the funerary texts addressed. Constructive criticism can only result when Egyptologists, scientists, and professionals in related disciplines work together to expand or modify the ideas within this work. Although the thesis addresses more than one scientific discipline, students of general level science, teachers and professionals should find it interesting. I've provided diagrams and matrices along with definitions of scientific terms within the text, online resources and the references denoted by an asterisk and a glossary of Egyptian deities in terms to aid understanding. The argument addresses 10 objectives in part one through part four that guide the reader to conclusions and possibilities in part five. Some of the issues noted in the thesis are more controversial than those of the story. Was the birth of science in Egypt? 
Can human consciousness exist after death? Can we take control of our afterlife? Is God a quantum life form modeling complex viral behavior? Although the textual references and signs taken individually may be vague, the 870 decoded signs as a whole exhibit a unified matrix of Egyptian science that mirrors and surpasses the knowledge of modern scientists. Is the scientific afterlife knowledge of the pharaohs useful to living human beings? That is for you to decide. I began this exploration of the Egyptian afterlife because I believed the ancient pharaohs possessed knowledge that would shed light on life and death, thereby eliminating the fear of the unknown for humans. My work rewarded me with the knowledge of why the ancient kings did not fear death, why they looked upon the world with a cool equanimity that was omniscient and eternal. Although no theory is an absolute theory, this thesis provides a scientific rationale for an afterlife existence that helps one to understand who we are, how our universe works, and what we can become. Chapter 1 Revision The art of looking back Of seeing with fresh eyes Of entering an old text From a new critical direction Is for us More than a chapter In cultural history It is an act of survival Until we can understand the assumptions in which we are drenched, we cannot know ourselves. When we dead awaking, writing as revision, Adrian Rich. A starry black night is broken by a cold eye forever watching over the human sea of life. In relentless pursuit, the sun guards the hazy horizon like an island of fire heating the earth, although this is not its real intention. The glittering eye from the horizon knows about the theft of fire and is angry because we steal its energy. We capture its fire to live, and that is why the crimson ring is a noose around our necks. Or better yet, a raw tattoo of smoldering iron carved in our hearts. If a watcher stares long enough at that unblinking hydrogen eye, he will understand, as I do, that it is a living organism out for revenge. Plagued by ideas such as these, my estranged state of mind forced me to quest for the eternal death of the sun. Thoughts of this nature do not shape the destinies of the general rabble who question their existence, but such considerations have styled the lives of two individuals that I respect, a madman who despaired and a sadist who lived crazed by the belief that the universe is a purposeless, monotonous machine cycling round and round like the earth about the sun.
Certainly, the sadist idea of a purposeless world is disturbing. But more disquieting is the madman's warning which haunts my mind like a thief stealing the remains of my sanity. He said that when a person gazes too long into the abyss, the abyss begins to gaze back. The horror hidden in this idea forced me to quit staring at the sun. Unlike the sadist, I could not believe that human existence had no purpose. And I doubt that Friedrich the Madman believed this either. For he told me a story, a parable about a shepherd who was sleeping when a black... Okay. Where are we at? Finally, my friend screamed to the choking shepherd that he should bite the snake's head off. Desperate, the shepherd brought his jaws hard down on the snake, bit off its ugly head, and spat it out. Jumping up laughing, he was no longer a shepherd, no longer human, but changed and radiant which plunged Friedrich into deeper despair and madness because Frederick wanted the shepherd's transformation. He wanted to be the overman, a being beyond human, but he did not know how to make the change. Before going completely mad, he told me more about his overman, and I could see reason in his madness. Frederick explained his makeover idea by saying that a human being was like a rope with one end held by a beast and the other by the overman. If a person could walk the tight rope from the beast to the overman without falling, he would become the overman. The object, Frederick said, is not to let the jester pass you on the rope. When he first said jester, I imagined some fool balancing on the rope and tripping me. But Friedrich explained that the rope stretched between two towers and that I would come out of the small tower door on the left, followed by an excited gesture who would taunt me as I walked the rope. Friedrich agreed that the erotic clown would be hard to beat because he was behind me. And from this vantage point, he could easily threaten me with abusive shouting that I was lame, slow, and should be locked back up in my tower. Friedrich then said that when I least expected it, the hyper freak would jump over me, throwing me off balance to crash me to my death. The situation seemed irreversible, but I could not give up hope that there was a solution to outwit the jester. Is there any way I can trick the jester, I said cleverly, into coming out first so I won't fall off the rope? Visibly shaken by my remark, Friedrich said, I've never been able to overcome the jester. All that I can do for you is to pick up your corpse after you fall. Looking at Friedrich's heartbreaking eyes, 
I could see his despair and I sensed the beginning of my own. The tragedy of always trying and forever failing was disturbing, but an idea came to me. What if Frederick did not have all the information? What if Frederick did not have all the information? Maybe he had overlooked some valuable piece of knowledge related to the gesture, a mystery about the gesture that, if known, would make it possible to walk the tight rope to the overman. It then occurred to me that only a fool would choose to walk the tight rope with the Joker behind him. You have no choice, said Frederick. You are born to walk the rope and fall off. I insisted that there must be a solution, that he had overlooked something, but he sadly shook, shook his, shit, his head no. That was my last memory of the madman, for he had a complete emotional breakdown. In 1889, Frederick witnessed a sadistic cab driver brutally whipping his carriage horse. Sobbing, Frederick ran to the suffering animal, throwing his arms around its bloody neck to protect the horse from the merciless whip of his master. Frederick collapsed completely in the Turin Street next to the horse. Even though he underwent psychiatric treatment, he never recovered, dying almost two years later on October 25th, 10 days after his 56th birthday. I was still carrying the corpse of Frederick Nietzsche's thought with me, still thinking of a way to outwit the gesture, when I read the works of the sadist, who was also missing valuable information. According to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic Manual of Mental Disorders, a sadist is a person who inflicts physical or psychological suffering on another to achieve sexual excitement. The earliest age of onset is childhood and three criteria determine this disorder. For the purpose of sexual excitement, if one repeatedly and intentionally abuses a non-consenting partner or mildly or mortally abuses a consenting partner, then that person is a sexual sadist. The disorder can become severe for some sadist rape, torture, and kill their victims. My friend Donatin was a self-professed sadist who only abused consenting partners. Yet he was branded a demon, an alchemist, a Casanova, and a bluebeard who cut up his wives. Born into aristocracy, he was naturally arrogant coming from a family well-known for their activities in civil and church affairs. Although neglected by his parents, household servants indulged him, and by the age six, Donatin was tutored by his uncle, a friend of Voltaire's. In time, Donatin understood that nature was totally indifferent to the experiences in a man's life. It did not matter whether one was dead or alive, imprisoned or free. 
Donatin understood this well, for he has spent 28 years of his life in prison for charges such as not paying debts, excessive behavior in a brothel, and for writing and publishing his stories. One wonders what was true about his life and what was contrived to prevent truth seekers from reading his writings. One story has it that when he was 32, he and his manservant Armand engaged four prostitutes to satisfy his flogging fantasies. All enjoyed the episode until Donatin offered the girls honesty sweets laced with Spanish fly. This resulted in the girls becoming very sick and Donatin on trial for poisoning and sodomy. Escaping to Italy with his wife's younger sister, whom he passed off as his wife, he was soon imprisoned by the king of Sardinia in a cell called the Great Hope after his mother-in-law requested the king to arrest him. Nonetheless, these reports of Donatin's antics did not stop me from reading his writings. I considered him my mentor as I did Frederick, even though Donatin sometimes acted like the cruel cab driver that tortured the horse. Like Frederick, after his breakdown, Donatin believed in nothing at all, except perhaps for a good flogging to relax oneself. To me, he was a free spirit, a rebel against <clears throat> the absurd as Camus perceived him, a revolutionary force for a change in thinking. One day he told me that his storyline modus operandi of maiming, raping, and humiliating women for male pleasure was just a literary technique to emphasize a point. Wondering whether his misogynist method was that effective, I said, well, Donatin, it better be a good point because posterity has you labeled as a sexual deviant. They have taken your last name and made it a psychiatric disorder. The Marquis Donatin de Sadie laughed and motioned me forward as if to tell me a secret that would change my life. He said, in the real world, Virtue serves no useful purpose. Even a woman uses her virtue as a mask to disguise her physical weakness while showing off her sexuality. <laughs>